Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to the Science of Success the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we talk about the major factors that drive business value, how to build recurring revenue, and the inside baseball of how to make the right choices when selling your business with our guest, John Orillo. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed the powerful science behind why being hard on yourself often backfires and how you can harness self-compassion to be healthier, happier, and more productive with our previous guest, Kristen Neff. Now for our interview with John. John Orillo is the founder of the Value Builder System, a simple software for building the value of a company used by thousands of businesses worldwide. His best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books of 2011, has been translated into 12 languages. John is the host of Built to Sell Radio, author of the best-selling book, The Automatic Customer, and has completed his trilogy with his latest book, The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. John, welcome to the Science of Success. Good to be with you, Matt. 
Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. I'm a big fan of your works and, and the value builder system is such a great framework for thinking about and, and really approaching the way to structure and analyze your company. That's great. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a systematic way to think about what drives the value of your business. I find, you know, valuation is this sort of very esoteric concept. It's very nebulous where people use a lot of buzzwords and acronyms to try to describe what essentially are a couple of major unique pillars that drive the value of your company. So our goal is to kind of simplify that for entrepreneurs and teach them how to, you know, just drive up the value of their business. And it's such an important point because a lot of people miss the the cornerstones of what are really actually the major value drivers of business. And I know your your trilogy of works, if you will, has really hit on a lot of those major pillars. Before we jump into some of the the tactics and strategies that can really help you when you're actually ready to exit your business, I, I want to lay some foundational work and, and start with, as you said, those big pillars. What are the major factors that drive a business's value? Yeah, I mean, there, there are eight unique drivers. They all have one thing in common, and that is that for a business to be transferable, to be valuable in the eyes of an acquirer, it's got to be able to thrive without the owner. You know, so many companies, the owner is in the epicenter, right? They're the chief rainmaker for the business. They're the ones who oversee production of whatever product or service they they provide. And so those companies are very difficult to sell because of course the owner or the acquirer knows that, you know, once the owner leaves, there's nothing left to the business. And so what you've got to do is envision that your company has to be able to succeed without you. And I, and I talked to, I use an analogy that I, I don't know if, if, if you've got kids, Matt, but for, for me, it helps because I've got kids and I think of my job primarily as a, as a dad is to, to somehow get these, uh, these kids to a point where they can be happy functioning independent adults. And if I've done that, then I, I will feel happy about it. I, they don't need to go to Harvard. They don't need to play quarterback for Alabama. They just need to be able to succeed on their own terms. If we, if we think about entrepreneurship in the same way and and envisioning our business as a you know 15 year old adolescent where our job is not necessarily to hit some revenue number or hit some profit goal it's actually just to get it to a point where it can it can kind of live without you and if you've done that uh you built a, a company that you could sell it's such a key insight and and i spend a lot of my time looking at and evaluating acquisition opportunities in the lower middle market and it's amazing how many deals you come across, you know, companies doing, you know, five, even up to maybe sometimes $10 million in revenue. And the, it, the founder is the cornerstone of the entire company. And, and the, they have the business listed for sale. And, and you look at it and you go, I, I don't understand how this deal could possibly work without the founder. Right. Which leads a lot of deals where the owner sells 60% of the company and has to roll the 40% remaining into a new entity. And the challenge, of course, there is they, the owner goes from a 100% shareholder, you know, master of their own domain to being having had just enough skin in the game that it hurts to walk away from that 40% of their equity. And they've, they've got to effectively 
run their company as a minority shareholder for years in the future. And that's one of the challenges I think with, with a company that's so deeply dependent on the owner. It also happens as you've seen, I'm sure Matt, in your work with service businesses that are acquired using an earnout where the acquirer buys a portion of the business, but a big part of the proceeds the entrepreneur stands to gain are at risk in a future set of payments that are contingent on them achieving a set of goals. And of course, most entrepreneurs, and I'm sure the science uh, would, would, would bear this out, are are, are not hardwired to work for somebody, right? And so those years are incredibly painful. I, I'm reminded of a guy I interviewed on on um, on my podcast, this guy named Rod Jury. Do you know Rod? Have you ever had him on the show, man? I don't think so. Rod started the company Zero. Oh, and I'm familiar with that for sure. Yeah, so they're kind of in a battle with QuickBooks for dominance in the accounting package space. They're, they're sort of a SaaS leader in cloud accounting. Anyways, Jury built a company called Aftermail and selling it gave him the money to start zero. So I interviewed him about Aftermail and he, he talked about his sale, which the New Zealand papers, which is where he's from, you know, trumpeted it as a, a $45 million acquisition. But if you peel back the layers, the actual sale price was $15 million, still a great achievement for Rod. And the balance was in an earnout. And as Rod described to me, as I talked to him about it, I said, like, what was that like being in an earnout? He said it was it was brutal, right? Because he'd just gone through this incredibly emotional experience of selling his company. He'd been given enough money to live for the rest of his life in the $15 million downstroke payment that he received. And and, and it was just impossible to kind of navigate this corporate environment of this large enterprise company who'd bought his business. Needless to say, about six months later, he left the company that acquired his business, walked away from his entire earnout, and and went on to take the money and build zero. And I think that's a very common occurrence. Earnouts are this mirage that you know that acquirers tend to use to try to make the owner feel like they're getting maximum value for their company. But once you get into an earnout, it is, it is very tough slogging for the entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and without getting too much on that tangent and definitely being trapped in a huge corporate environment after running your own company, I imagine would be, would be very, very difficult to deal with. Um, but all of this really underscores the critical point and and this notion that you've you've written and, and spoken about extensively, which is this idea of if you engineer your business correctly from the front end, and and one of the fundamental principles that I think you've really nailed is this idea of beginning with the end in mind, right? And thinking about what are the fundamental drivers of of business value and how can you engineer a business from the beginning to run without you or to stand alone or to be able to be acquired if you're no longer involved in it. To me, that fundamental lesson, if, if entrepreneurs can internalize it, is, is such a powerful learning. It's, it sure is. And it, and it, I like to think of it as sort of an options strategy, which means that if you can structure your company that it can thrive without you, you've got like the ultimate poker hand, right? You, you could sell your company if you want, but a lot of entrepreneurs don't really want to sell. They'd like to know that they could sell if they wanted to. Equally, you could bring in an outside manager to run your company day to day and kick yourself up to the boardroom and make yourself chairman. You could sell a portion of it to a private equity group and 
retain ownership. You could sell it again to a strategic or you could just pass it down to your kids or a management team and be confident that it's going to thrive without you. So it's kind of like the ultimate poker hand. It's, it's, it gives you everything in the way of options. And there's nothing more that will trigger a, 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 an outsized acquisition offer is to have negotiating leverage, right? To have a, what they call a BATNA in negotiating lingo, a best alternative to a negotiated agreement, which means you've got a plan B. And if you've got a thing, a business that can thrive without you, you've just got lots of options and, and you could sell, but you're not required to. And that gives you the ultimate leverage. Yeah. And creating that BATNA and having your company run without you, again, it creates so much optionality when you, when you have that flexibility and you're not tied into the day-to-day operations of the business. That way you can say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to keep operating and cash flowing this company or growing my equity value or whatever you decide to do. Or if I get a really attractive offer, I can sell it. But if you're in the weeds every day and you're an integral part of the major value drivers of the company, it's almost impossible to to pull yourself out of that. Yeah, it was it was funny. I was doing a uh, a speech to a group of entrepreneurs. This is just prior to the pandemic, and I was talking to them about their aspirations. You know, can you raise your hand if you think you want to sell your company. Raise your hand if you want to do a private equity deal, et cetera. <laughs> And then the one guy raises his hand and says, I want a sailboat business. And I'm like, all right. I'm like, what's a sailboat business? And he said, a sailboat business is a business that I can sit on my deck chair, put my feet up on the gunnels of my sailboat, and people will just send me checks. <laughs> nice. I'm like, perfect. That's exactly, uh, that's exactly what I mean by building a business that can thrive without you. So, uh, I sometimes refer to a sailboat business in my own mind as this sort of, uh, euphoric, uh, or this mythical business that can succeed without its owner. And so without going super deep, cause I want to get into the art of, of selling a business <laughs> without getting super deep into this, what are a few of the major pillars or lessons of, of engineering a business on the front end to be able to thrive without you? Well, I think one of the big things is recurring revenue, right? You mentioned earlier your, your example of, of some of the deals you look at where it's a you know, 10 or $15 million company, yet the owner is still the primary rainmaker. It's very common for an owner to naturally become the biggest salesperson in their organization. And that's great. Except if you want to sell your company, because if you are the primary rainmaker, it's not worth much to anybody in the opposite, though, is to create recurring revenue where you've got a an automatic payment that's coming in a stream or an annuity stream of revenue coming in that is is predictable. And, and it's usually something that's pretty easy to set up. Like sometimes when I say recurring revenue, people think of, of software companies like SaaS software as a service businesses. And that's certainly one form of recurring revenue, but there's lots of others. And for a lot of even service-based businesses who kind of scratch their head at this idea and say like, well, how would I ever create recurring revenue? Think about the magic of a service contract, right? Simple recurring service for fee. So if you, uh, clean carpets, as an example, you're like my friend, Joe Polish, who does carpet cleaning, those businesses, you can wait till the phone rings and, or you could set up a service contract where every two weeks you go and clean the carpets at the office of the home that you are contracted to do. 
if you do that, it creates not only a more valuable company, it creates a more predictable company. All of a sudden, if you are a HVAC company, as an example, you do heating and air conditioning and you have a set of contracts where you go every six months, you change out the furnace filters and you you know make sure the air quality is good, et cetera. If that is a predictable service contract that you have, it's deliciously valuable. It's very, very attractive to an acquirer. But again, you could predict how many folks you need, how many trucks you need to buy, how many furnace filters you need in advance, what your your next quarter, next year is going to look like. And so when you have a predictable business, it's a whole lot more profitable. It's also a lot more fun for the people working for you because they know what is coming. And again, the service contract for in particular service businesses is this sort of hidden gem where you can take some of the benefits of the subscription offering or software, software as a service and inject, and inject them into even the most simple of businesses. And I know you quite literally wrote the book on that concept as well. It's, it's such an interesting idea and, and a great thought experiment to think about how can you take a business that traditionally doesn't have a recurring revenue model and generate or create a, a novel way of, of having recurring revenue in an industry that typically we always think of software, but a lot of other industries could also have recurring revenue businesses. You bet. And I think the problem that a lot of entrepreneurs run into or the obstacle a lot of owners face when they think about this idea. Most people, when you say, hey, you need recurring revenue, they nod up and down and go, yeah, yeah, I know, but. And the but is I have not figured out what my recurring revenue model could be. And what I found is the biggest reason or the biggest impediment to coming up with a recurring revenue model is that most owners try to boil the ocean. They try to come up with a, a subscription offering or service contract to appeal to all of their customers. And that's almost a definition or almost a recipe for dilution. You're going to really make a crappy service offering or a crappy subscription offering if you're trying to create one offering for everybody. Because everybody's got different needs. All your customers buy from you for different reasons. And therefore, if you try to create some service contract that will appeal to everybody, it will really appeal to nobody. And so what I would recommend you do if you're struggling to find your subscription offering is to first niche down by buying behavior. Uh, segmentation is something that lots of marketers talk about. The idea of segmenting by buying behavior is like, why do people buy from us and try to create homogeneous kind of buckets? I'll give you an example of this. This does come directly from the automatic customer book. It's H. Bloom the guys who sell flowers on subscription. They looked at all the people who bought flowers and we buy flowers for lots of different reasons, right? We buy flowers for weddings and funerals and graduations and birthdays, et cetera. But they looked at one segment of the market that buy, buys flowers for different reason. And that is, there's a segment, hotels, wealth management companies, some spas, buy flowers to look fancy. They buy flowers to project an image to their customers of a boutique high-end image. And again, these are high-end sort of retailers, high-end hotels, et cetera. So H. Bloom didn't try to create a subscription for anyone who buys flowers, which would have failed. They said, no, we're going to go out and build a subscription just for people who are trying to project a boutique image, hotels, restaurants, and spas. And they created H. Bloom. And, and you know, the average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber is like last time I checked – 
uh, was like over $1,400. Compare that to the average transaction of somebody who rocks up to a flower store and buys a dozen roses. It's, it pales in comparison. Uh, but they've, it didn't start by just trying to create a subscription for anyone who buys flowers. The first step was to figure out, okay, what are our buying segments? And then building out a subscription uh, model from there. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. That's such a fantastic example and really illustrates the power of that approach of segmenting your markets, but also how in an industry where you would on the surface say, well, there's no way you can have a recurring revenue business around buying flowers because it's so seasonal, it's so specific. And yet, if you really think about the market in a different way and take a, a completely new approach to it, you can, you can uncover recurring revenue opportunities that you may not have previously seen. You bet. I, I'm a firm believer that virtually any business can create at least some recurring revenue. Not all, not every dollar that you generate would be from recurring revenue, but I think you can create your 10, 20, 30, 40% in most businesses relatively easy. And that triggers something called the Trojan horse effect, which is the, the kind of dirty little secret of the subscription model, if you will. And that is that oftentimes the very fact that a consumer subscribes to you, it triggers them to buy other things off subscription. Let me say that again. Once people subscribe to your company, once you get an Amazon Prime subscription, for example, and you've been buying from Amazon all your books and cat litter for years, you get that Prime subscription and all of a sudden it makes you much more likely to go beyond just cat litter and books. And now all of a sudden you're checking out all the other things that Amazon offers. It's very similar. There's a guy I wrote about named Jim Vagonis who has a company called Hassle-Free Homes where you guessed it, he put, you put you know, a service contract in place for homeowners, kind of manage your home for you. Well, 50% of his revenue comes from people, not who he does, uh, they're just their subscription, but for things that are one-off things that they ask Jim to do for them because Jim's in their home every week and they've got the trust with Jim and that Jim's got their credit card and there's a billing relationship. So once they subscribe to you, even if it's just 10% of your revenue, it, it creates this beautiful little uh, relationship that is the foundation of your customers buying lots of other things from you. Such a great insight. And, and it's totally true. I mean, Amazon is, is one of the supreme examples of this, but even something as simple as having a, a billing relationship and saying, oh, I can just pay with my, I already got my billing set up. Okay, great makes me more likely to to purchase something. My wife's always after me for this because I, and I, sh I shouldn't joke because it's terrible, but I, I, I get a lot of Amazon packages and she's like, you bought, you know, like vitamins for like, really, you know, there's like, I could have gone to the, you know, <laughs> but I'm just totally a sucker for the fact that I've got my prime subscription. My credit card is all wired in. It's like one click and I'm done. And unfortunately it's incredible inertia, right? Unfortunately, it's fortunate for Amazon and their shareholders. It's unfortunate for any retailers that are trying to compete, but it is just such an easy 
easy thing to do. And again, that's Amazon and they're a giant gorilla. But even if you have a very small company, um, to go back to the HVAC example, you're basically, you know, repairing people's furnaces. Well, if you put them on that, that very inexpensive hundred dollar a year service plan, guess who they're going to call when their service, when their furnace breaks, they're not going to call the yellow, they're not going to Google, you know, HVAC companies. They're going to say, oh, you know, these guys come in every six months. Let's just call them and have them replace it. They already know who we are, where we live, what our address is. We already have a billing relationship. It's just so much easier. Yep. And so I, one other tidbit on recurring revenue that I want to ask, and then we can expand this conversation a little bit, but have, do you have any specific strategies or, or maybe tactics for a brainstorming exercise or some way to, let's say somebody's listening to this that wants to think about a, how to add recurring revenue to their business? Is there a thought experiment or a question that you really like to implement to help put that into place for, for your company? Yeah, we talk about the six forms of recurring revenue and it starts with consumables, right? So one thing you can just ask yourself is what do my customers run out of? Right. If you're a coffee drinker, you run out of coffee. If you're a, you know, we all run out of razor blades. We all run out of toner cartridge. We all run out of things. And so asking yourself, what do we run out of? If you want to walk one step up the rung on the ladder of subscription offerings, and by the way, as you move up the ladder, the value of that subscription revenue increases in the eyes of the choir. So each rung you go up, you get a better valuation. The second rung for up from consumables is sunk money consumables. So here we're making a platform purchase, right? Again, the one that we all know is we buy a razor, right? Guess what? Once we buy a razor, we're way more likely to buy the blades that fit that razor. It's a silly example, but you can, you can project that out to virtually anything. If your customer buys a widget, a piece of machinery, uh, from you, then ask yourself, that's great. What part of that machine runs out? Is there, uh, is there some element of it that needs replenishing? And that's what can go on subscription. Um, those are effectively platforms that need replenishing. And that's how you sort of start to march up this hierarchy of getting more and more valuable, uh, subscription revenue in the eyes of uh, acquirers. Perfect. And so now, now that we've laid some of this foundation for the, the, principal ideas of how to approach building your business, how to potentially add some recurring revenue into your business. That brings us to the art of selling your business. Tell me a little bit about the, from a high level perspective, how you approached the, the strategies and, and key tactics for exiting your company. Yeah. So, I mean, really I have sort of a firsthand ringside seat at the fight in the sense that I do a podcast called Built to Sell Radio where I interview a different entrepreneur every week. I've been doing it for five years. And the purpose of the podcast is to ask entrepreneurs about their exit. So I interview people who have sold a company and I say like, what did you learn? What did you do right? What mistakes did you make? What did you, you know, what would you do over B? And what I've come to see is that there is a small cohort of guests I've had on the podcast who punch well above their weight in terms of negotiating leverage. They seem to get multiples that are much higher than the typical industry multiples that companies in that industry t tend to get. And so it got me quite 
sort of switched on and turned on to try to figure out what were these guys and gals doing that made their company so much more valuable than the prevailing wisdom in that industry. And so I started to really analyze their secrets. And that's really what the book is all about. It's a distillation of the transferable lessons from all of these entrepreneurs that seem to punch above their weight when they go to sell. And I've tried to put together a bit of a, uh, a field guide for entrepreneurs to, uh, uh, to have a, a spectacular exit, uh, an exit that, um, that they can be proud of. One of the ideas that I, that I really enjoyed was this, this notion of controlling the process and the idea of the slow reveal. Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. I I can't do it without using a, a very crude analogy, but we can all imagine the striptease. I don't care if you like the striptease at Solid Gold or at Chippendales. It doesn't. It's not a gender specific thing, but the striptease is the best analogy I can use for the way a M and A process should reveal information. Your clothing, in this case, is your data. Your data is incredibly valuable to the eyes of an acquirer. The, the, the sales projections that you have for the year ahead, your product roadmap, your gross margin, your profitability, all the stuff that uh, an acquirer is going to want to ask you about is, is valuable. And so the savviest sellers tend to reveal their information slowly. The opposite is also true. The first time rookie sellers typically get an acquire get an acquirer on the line, the acquirer says, "Hey, you know, why don't you just send me, you know, your books and I'll, you know, have a look and see what we think." And they'll like pass on their <laughs> their credentials for QuickBooks Online and said, "Well, here you go. Go ahead and, and look at all of our our, our financials." And of course, that's a recipe for giving way too much information. What we've got to do is is parse out or 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 hand out information in such a way that it increases the desire of the person receiving the information. And again, the most successful sellers are doing that while they're doing that with other acquirers at the same time. But what you're trying to do is get multiple bidders for your business to convalesce around or, or congregate around your business at about the same time so that you get competing offers. That's when you have leverage to start ginning up one offer off the get off the next, but you only do that if you're revealing information slowly in a deliberate fashion to lots of different acquirers at the same time, which is why there's a, a process we lay out in the book that gets you to a, a very step-by-step -step process of, of, of what information needs to be shared when with who. And do you think about when, when you're looking at exiting, how do you approach the, the question of whether to bring on an advisor or a broker of some kind. Yeah, look, I know it can be tempting to go it alone and just hire your accountant or your lawyer to sell your company. I mean, you know, an M&A professional charges a success fee, as does a broker, a commission. And you can look at that and say, wow, like, you know, I already know a couple of acquirers. I've already had a couple of offers. Like, why do I need, a you know, an M&A professional? I think that's short-sighted. I think it's penny rich and pound foolish. The reality is that when you go to sell your company, you really need a rep representative, somebody who's going to sell your business. They can act as a foil for the emotional sort of ups and downs of selling. If you've got a third party representing uh, you, you just you, it's a layer of insulation, right? You can also get competing offers to compete with with 
themselves for your company. If you've got an M&A professional involved, that's their job is to create competitive tension for your deal. They're also really good and have been around the the block a few times to know illegitimate retrading when they see it. And retrading is effectively when you agree to a price, you both agree to sell your business, sign a, sign a, sign a letter of intent, both agree to a, a price. And then 60 days after due diligence, the acquirer lowers the price because in part they know you're committed to the sale. And while that's a very common strategy for acquirers, most good M&A professionals will sniff it out and put it and nip it in the bud pretty early. So, you know, I could go on as to the value of an M&A professional. By the way, that's not what I do for a living. So I'm not saying it in a, in a self-serving way. I'm, I'm saying that if I were selling another company and I have done this, I would hire an M&A professional. I, I wouldn't sell a house despite the fact that you can sell a house these days independently. I wouldn't do it without an agent. Similarly, I just wouldn't sell a company. It's a much more complicated entity than a house to sell. And, um, and I think you just best serve with somebody on your team in that, in that role. And it underscores what you said a moment ago of it, you're much, much, much more likely to generate a pool of interested bidders if you bring on an M&A professional as opposed to trying to do it yourself. You're absolutely right. It, you know, your M&A professional is also going to going to guide you uh, against answering some of the the classic sort of questions that acquirers ask that often get owners into trouble. I mean, one of the biggies that that uh, that is very common among small business owners is they answer the question, "What do you want for your company?" So an acquirer will get you into a corner. They'll buy you dinner or lunch or whatever, and they'll say, "You know, kind of." figuratively put their arm around you and, and sort of said like, you built this great business. I mean, you must be super proud of it. I mean, like, like, what do you think is a fair price? And it seems like a reasonable question, right? Like you, you want to make sure you're on the same page with the acquirer and that, you know, you got, there's a deal that can be done. But the moment you answer that question is the moment you put a ceiling onto which you will never sell your business beyond. It's it's one of the classic tricks that acquirers will use to try to elicit your sort of bottom line. And of course, they will make it their mission at that point forward to never buy your business for a penny close to what you want for it. And so, look, I think there's a way to answer that question uh, that takes into consideration that you're a reasonable person, that you'll entertain a you know a reasonable offer for your company, but you're not going to be the first one to lay the price. You know, he who says his or her price first virtually always loses. And I think that's true in, in the case of an acquisition as well. That's a great example. I'd be curious to hear what are some of the other big mistakes you see people making when they're selling their businesses or maybe more specifically, what are some of the other trap questions or, or things you see acquirers doing that sellers should avoid or, or try to counter? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the the whole the whole theme of the book. So there's tons and tons of them. Um, I could talk about a few. So the classic is a no shop clause that is in a letter of intent. So when you sell your business, you're going to have to sign a an LOI or a letter of intent, and that's like an engagement ring. You know, you're you're committing not to effectively continue to negotiate with other buyers that you are in fact falling head over heels in love with one acquire. It's non-binding, however, and so what what you have to realize is that a letter of intent for in, in both cases is usually non-binding. I Meaning either party can walk away at any time. So 
you've really got to make sure that the acquirer knows you are sensitive to the idea of retrading. So I talked about it earlier, the fact that that prices can be dropped during due diligence. So I think that the secret, and this comes from Barry Hinckley, who I interviewed, uh, he just says, do the no hand, no uh, retraining handshake, where at the signing of the letter of intent, you get up, walk around the boardroom table, you shake the hand of the person, of course, once this pandemic's over, you shake the hand of the person making the acquisition offer, and you say, I'll do this deal on one condition. He or she says, what's that? And you say, no retrading. And by doing the no retrading handshake, you're effectively just communicating to the acquirer that you know that game and that you're not going to fall victim to it. So that's one of the, uh, the, the, the classic things. Certainly revealing too much information too early is another classic mistake. Another one is positioning your business uh, and in an industry that has a low valuation multiple. So for example, there's a story in the book from a guy named M. Bennett. M. Bennett was in the business of designing websites for colleges and universities. Uh, one, in fact, close to you where, where, where you are, Vanderbilt. They work with a lot of the, the, the very famous universities and, and put together websites and converted some of their content into online courses. And when they talked about their business, they talked about their business as a web design shop. And as you might imagine, uh, web design shops are a service businesses The you know, the, the assets go up and down the elevator every night, as David Ogilvy said, they're project based, they're very lumpy. There's nothing really too ser- you know, sexy about a project based web design shop. And so a three times multiple is like a pretty fair multiple for a, you know, a generic service business. Well, Jeffrey Felberg is the guy I interviewed and he said, you know, like we weren't happy with three times. So we kind of did some navel gazing, thought about the industry that we were in, thought about how we were positioning ourselves, what we were doing, and they decided to start positioning what they did as part of the e-learning phenomenon. This was around the time that Linda was acquired by uh, LinkedIn, that uh, there was just tremendous sort of interest in and excitement in the e-learning space. And so Feldberg said, look, we're not going to position ourselves as a web design shop. We're going to position ourselves as a leader in the burgeoning e-learning category. They made some changes to their business model. Two years later, they get acquired as a leader in the e-learning category for roughly 13 times earnings. That's the power of positioning, getting yourself in the eyes of an acquirer into a category that is a higher valuation multiple category. And there's some strategies, some tactics to doing that, but it can be a, a, a tremendous way to lift the value of your company. Yeah, that's such a such an illustrative example of of the power of repositioning. I, and and I've heard many many instances or insights of that strategy. Sometimes when I look at the the tactical implementation of that, how much do you need to? And, and I know it's case by case, but a, a lot of times I feel like you really need to change your business model in, in, in some instances, or or make material changes to the business itself. So how do you think about making those business pivots? to try and be in a new industry as opposed to just saying, oh, hey, you know, we're just changing what we call ourselves. And, and, you know, I feel like a smart buyer will oftentimes sniff that out and say, oh, but this is really just a marketing agency. 
Yeah, look, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think I, I would characterize the the changing of your business to make it more valuable in 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 two different ways. You think about a home. When you go to sell your home, as we've talked about, there's the the kind of staging that you do, right? Like the the new paint job, the baking the cookies when you have a showing, et cetera. That's staging, right? That's optics. And then you have structural, like replacing the old kitchen right? Construction projects that make your business more valuable. So I think both are, are relevant. We've talked about some of the, the things you can do that structurally make your business more valuable, recurring revenue, making it succeed without you personally. There are though also some optical things that you can do. And you're rightly pointing out, I think in the case of Embedet, they did both. There were structural changes to the model. They also changed cosmetically or optically the way they positioned their company. But, but optics do matter. I think they do matter. They're not going to, you're not going to buy a business based on optics, but you'll often filter out a business based on optics. So for example, if you're, if you you're like one of the big acquiring groups, one of the most likely people to buy a company in the small to mid-sized business space right now is a private equity group. Private equity groups do their research online, right? So let's imagine that you are a private equity group and you're looking to buy solar companies. Well, if you're a business owner and you offer alternative energy solutions like geothermal, like wind and solar, and you position yourself as a cosmopolitan, neopolitan patchwork quilt of alternative energy solutions. A private equity company is going to look at your business and say, yeah, I like the solar stuff, but I know nothing about windmills. And they're going to go on to the next company. Whereas if you know that private equity companies are rolling up solar businesses right now, then you're going to want to be on your front foot and positioning yourself as a solar company, that you're solar first, that in the event that a solar solution is not practical, you'll also include potentially a wind solution or geothermal solution, but solar is your first choice. That's a private equity group when they see that looking to roll up solar companies, they're going to be much more interested. It's the same company, same revenue split, solar to geothermal. It's just the way you position it. So as you look out in the landscape and find out what acquirers are looking for, where there is private equity companies rolling up, you know, private equity companies these days are rolling up just about any industry. Um, I did a speech right before the pandemic. I get all the sexy gigs, Matt. I did a speech at the car wash owners association. <laughs> This is Very people, as the name suggests, that own car washes. And even there, they are rolling up, private equity companies are rolling up car washes. And so you can name virtually any industry. And what you want to make sure is you're swimming downstream, that if a private equity company is rolling up businesses in your industry, well, you damn well want to make sure that you look like one of those businesses. Everywhere from like, like, like buy, like, go through a search engine optimization process and make sure that you are popping for a Google search in your industry, in your local market, because not only customers are going to find you, but acquirers are going to find you too. Yeah. I really like the analogy you gave a moment ago of, of the difference between staging your house for a sale and renovating your kitchen and, and how those two approaches both can increase the value of your home. It's a really, it's a really good way of, of contextualizing how you might reposition a company to be in a more profitable industry. One other big theme that I want to that I want to touch on that you write about in the book is this idea of the the difference between price and terms and the the very interesting relationship between those two items. Tell me a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, I mean, there's an old expression among M&A professionals, you set the price, I'll set the terms. And effectively, what that old cliche says is you can name any price, but the terms will take that price away. So what I mean by that is we can agree that your business, like I can want 10 times EBITDA for a business and, and you can want to buy it for five. I can agree, great, well, you know what? I'll pay you 10 times, but I'm going to put 75% of the proceeds on an earnout, And I'm going to make that earnout so arduous and impossible for you to reach that I'm actually buying your business for pennies on the dollar. The terms are so critical. So effectively, it comes down to how and when you're going to get your money, under what conditions. So the things that we talked about already are earnouts are very commonly used to basically bridge the gap between what a seller wants and what a buyer is willing to pay. Equally, the working capital calculation is also an important number to look at. It's the second most important number on an acquisition deal. We all myopically go straight to the acquisition number, right? That's the, the number that we care about most. But this working capital calculation is also very important. And it's essentially the cash you need to leave in your company when you hand over the keys. Most owners, if they've been successful in running their business for many years, they've got retained earnings in their company, a little rainy day fund that they just kind of keep in their company for, you know, uh, emergencies. Well, an acquirer looking at that business is going to say, great, I'm buying the business. I want the retained earnings. The seller is going to say, those retaining earnings are mine. Like that's money I've had for three, four or five years ago. And so that gets defined in the working capital calculation. And so you want to make sure that that number is vetted by your advisor. There's lots of different terms that are critical that beyond just the headline number, you're going to want to look at. Another one that, that we haven't talked about but is equally uh, important are adjusted EBITDA. We all talk about multiples uh, as they are like fishing stories. Like my buddy got three times earnings or she got five times earnings and, and, and it becomes like this folklore. The key question though, when you're thinking about multiples is a multiple of what? And is it a multiple of trailing 12 months? Is it a multiple of last year's completed financial statements? Is it a, a multiple of the future? The biggest driver of the overall value is going to be something called adjustments, where you're going to adjust your profit and loss statement for how your company would perform in the acquirer's hands. And the, the big change you're going to make to your profit and loss statement is to replace your executive compensation line item with a market rate salary for a general manager to do your job. And in most cases, we pay ourselves more than we would replace a general manager. And so what that does is when you change that number out for your salary and put in a general manager's salary is you then increase your profitability. Therefore, if they're willing to pay five times EBITDA, then guess what? The EBITDA multiple goes up or the EBITDA number, even if the multiple doesn't go up, the actual overall value of the company goes up. I, I write about a guy named Ari Ackerman in the book where he did exactly that. He went to sell his company bunk one, got a ho-hum valuation. Then they went through the adjustment process. The acquirer was limited by board approval that they could only pay X multiple for his business. But what he, what he did, what Ari did was changed the profitability by stripping out some of the one-time expenses, some of the things that the acquirer were not going to have to pay for. So he didn't actually get them to raise their multiple, but they applied it against a much fatter profit. And ultimately, he had a tremendous exit for his company, Bunk One. So that's yet another way that the deal terms are almost more important than the price itself. Such a great insight. And I, and 
I wish we could dig into those deeper, but I want to take what we've talked about so far. What would be, if, if you had somebody listening to this and, and they wanted to take action, they, whether to sell their company or prepare their company for sale, what would be one action item that you would give them to, to take action on something that we've talked about today? You know, one thing is to conceive and think about your pull factors. I think we all as owners have both push and pull factors. What do I mean by that? Push factors are things that uh, frustrate you about your company, right? Government regulation, red tape, tax, employees, blah, blah, blah. These are all things that are legitimate frustrations for a lot of business owners. And sometimes they boil up so much that you actually decide you want to sell your company, which is fine. But that's not going to lead to a very happy exit. A year after selling, when we talk to business owners about their exit, one of the biggest regrets they have is they were all push, no pull. What what that means is that a pull factor is something you're excited to go do, a business you're excited to start, uh, a company you want to fund, a charity you want to start, a speech you want to give, a book you want to write. All those things are pull factors. And the happiest entrepreneurs are the ones with lots of pull factors. They're going to something, not leaving something behind. And that's probably one of the most, it's a fun exercise to do, especially in these, these in the times we're talking right now in the, in the midst of this pandemic where travel's become impractical and so forth. It's fun to get a pen and paper out and sort of dream about what you would love to do. And you'll find, I think, that galvanizes your appetite to really start investing in some of the things we've talked about today. And John, where can listeners find you and your work online? You know, all roads lead to builttosell.com. That's probably the, the, the best place, the central location. You can subscribe to the podcast there. You can get a bunch of white papers. If you go to builttosell.com slash selling, there are some gifts we put together for people who order the new book. Um, one of them that I'm really excited about is we're doing a seven-part Q&A with seven of the entrepreneurs I've interviewed for the book. Everybody, uh, all the way up to Jay Steinfeld, who start, sold a um, $100 million company, uh, blinds.com. And so folks can get access to that seven-part Q&A series. And they're all video calls with some really special entrepreneurs. They just need to go to that URL uh, or the book from there. So it's built to sell com and then if you go to slash selling awesome well john thank you so much for coming on the show for sharing all this wisdom some tremendous insights into how to make a company more valuable and how to really extract as much value as possible when you exit thanks matt it was a pleasure to be with you awesome thank you so much for listening to the science of success we created the show to help you our listeners master evidence-based growth i love hearing from listeners if you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand. 
our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com. Sign up right at the homepage. Or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 